Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, my name is Jasmine Mastimi. I'm a pediatric resident at LA County USD Medical Center. And today, we'll be talking about Case 32, titled Newborn with Hypoglycemia, by Drs. Shastri and Dr. Sokasai, on page 230. Let's go ahead and get started. So a late preterm female infant is delivered via cesarean section to a 24-year-old primogravida mother with type 2 diabetes mellitus. The infant is delivered early for a non-reassuring heart rate tracing. The mother received spotty prenatal care and did not have appropriate monitoring of her diabetes. On the day of delivery, the mother's hemoglobin A1c was high at 8.9%. Of reference, the normal level is between 4% and 5.6%. The infant cries spontaneously at birth and has some transient respiratory distress. Her birth weight is 4,000 grams, which is greater than the 95th percentile. As seen in figure 32.1, you can see the infant. On examination, she appears large for gestational age. She cries loudly but is consolable. She does not appear lethargic or jittery. The anterior and posterior fontanelles are soft and flat. Her facies are not dysmorphic. She has a good suck reflex. Her tongue is not large. Hard and soft palates are intact. Sclera are anecteric. There is mild nasal flaring. Her lungs are clear to auscultation without crackles. Her heart rate is regular and there are no murmurs appreciated. Her abdomen is soft and there is no palpable liver or spleen. Her ge- external genital and rectal examinations are normal and she has good perfusion in her extremities. She does not have any sacral dimples or rashes. Now, why are infants of diabetic mothers or IDMs large for gestational age? Macrosomia, defined as a birth weight greater than the 90th percentile for gestational age, is the hallmark of a diabetic pregnancy. In this vignette, the infant is macrosomic because her birth weight is greater than the 95th percentile. Fetal hyperinsulinemia is the main cause of fetal overgrowth in diabetic pregnancies. Elevated insulin levels in the fetus stimulate glycogen storage in the liver, increasing lipid synthesis and the accumulation of fat. The fetus has normal head growth, and an increased growth velocity and fat deposition in the abdominal organs and interscapular areas. Now, why did the patient have respiratory distress after she was born? Respiratory distress is a common complication in IDM or infants of diabetic mothers. A premature delivery is more likely to occur in IDMs because of a higher rate of preterm labor. There is also an increased rate of iatrogenic prematurity due to early induction of labor to prevent intrauterine fetal death. Respiratory symptoms in IDMs may be due to either respiratory distress syndrome or RDS due to surfactant deficiency or retained fetal lung fluid causing transient hypnea of the newborn or TTN after operative delivery. Now, for a basic science and clinical pearl, there is an increased risk of surfactant deficiency in IDMs because hyperinsulinemia in the fetus interferes with the induction of lung maturation by by glucocorticoids. Now, so what is the next step? Neonatal hypoglycemia must be ruled out in all IDMs, regardless of symptomatology. In a newborn, signs of hypoglycemia include apnea, bradycardia, cyanosis, hypothermia, irritability, sweatiness, 
jitteriness, tremors, poor feeding, weak or high-pitched cry, lethargy, coma, and seizures. Most findings are nonspecific and result from disturbances in central nervous system function. Now let's go ahead and take a look at this figure in 32.1, where you can see an infant born to a mother with gestational diabetes. She is large for gestational age and has rounded facies. Time for another clinical pearl. Infants with low blood glucose concentrations are frequently asymptomatic. Hypoglycemia in these cases is usually detected by the screening of blood glucose levels in at-risk infants. Now, case point 32.1. So, her serum glucose level is 10 milligrams per deciliter. For note, an abnormal level is actually less than 30 milligrams per deciliter and at one hour of life. So what are the causes of hypoglycemia in a newborn? Infants with excessive insulin production, altered hormone secretion, and inadequate substrate supply or inadequate amino acid or lipid stores are at risk for transient hypoglycemia. Normal gluconeogenesis and ketogenesis are required to maintain glucose homeostasis. Factors placing neonates at higher risk for developing hypoglycemia are prematurity due to limited hepatic glycogen stores, perinatal stress or asphyxia due to depleted glycogen stores, small size for gestational age also due to depleted glycogen stores, and being bored to a diabetic mother due to excessive insulin production. Other causes include infection, hypothermia, hyperviscosity, and erythroblastosis fetalis. Infants of mothers treated with hypoglycemic agents during pregnancy may also develop neonatal hypoglycemia. Time for another clinical pearl. Infants of mothers receiving intravenous dextrose during delivery may develop neonatal hypoglycemia. Persistent or recurrent hypoglycemia is far less common and can be separated into four categories. Hyperinsulinism, endocrine disorders, inborn errors of metabolisms, and neurohypoglycemia. Hyperinsulinism is seen in congenital hyperinsulinism, such as in Beckwith-Wiedermann syndrome. Endocrine disorders include congenital glucagon deficiency, cortisol deficiency, pituitary insufficiency, and epinephrine deficiency. Neurohypoglycemia is due to defective transport of glucose across blood vessels into the brain and cerebrospinal fluid. Inborn errors of metabolism include inherited disorders of carbohydrate, amino acid, and fatty acid metabolism. Now, why does this infant have hypoglycemia? The maternal glucose concentration is higher than the fetal concentration over a broad concentration range, and overall glucose flux follows a maternal to fetal concentration gradient. During pregnancy, fetal plasma glucose concentration is 70 to 80% of that of the maternal venous plasma glucose concentration. Maternal hyperglycemia thus leads to fetal hypoglycemia. Time for another basic science and clinical pearl. In utero, the fetus is completely dependent on maternal glucose transport across the placenta via facilitated diffusion. Fetal glucose production is actually minimal. Pregnancy characterized by maternal and fetal hyperglycemia results in prolonged stimulation of fetal insulin release. This induces hyperplasia of the fetal pancreatic beta cells. With the clamping of the umbilical cord, the neonate's maternal supply of glucose suddenly ceases. 
and the neonate develops hypoglycemia because of insufficient substrate with continued insulin secretion. For case 0.32.2, we'll see the diagnosis hypoglycemia secondary to hyperinsulinemia is seen in infants of diabetic mothers. So what is the treatment of asymptomatic neonatal hypoglycemia? Onset of hypoglycemia typically occurs within the first few hours of life. IDMs require close glu blood glucose monitoring after delivery and frequently need glucose supplementation. Serum or whole blood glucose levels of less than 47 milligrams per deciliter within the first 24 hours of after birth is abnormal and requires intervention. In an asymptomatic term infant, an initial attempt at enteral feeding may be successful in reaching target blood glucose values. Use of a standard infant formula will provide carbohydrate in the form of lactose and provide protein and fat, which are metabolized more slowly and therefore provide a sustained supply of substrate. Time for basic science and clinical pearl. Fat intake decreases cellular glucose uptake and stimulates gluconeogenesis, further contributing to the restoration of normal glucose homeostasis. Infants whose blood glucose concentrations normalize following an enteral feeding should continue to have blood glucose concentrations checked before each feeding for 12 to 24 hours. Infants who fail to achieve targeted glucose values by enteral feeds should be considered for intravenous or IV glucose therapy. So what is the treatment of symptomatic neonatal hypoglycemia? Immediate IV therapy with 200 milligrams per kilogram of dextrose is required in any symptomatic infant with hypoglycemia. A 10% dextrose solution provides 100 milligrams per milliliter of dextrose. So the starting dose is a two milliliter per kilogram infusion of dextrose 10%, regardless of the presence of enteral feeds. The initial bolus of dextrose should be followed by a continuous infusion of dextrose at a glucose infusion rate of six to eight milligrams per kilogram per minute to avoid rebound hypoglycemia. Carbohydrate infusion dosing is performed in glucose equivalent units. One milligram of dextrose provides the carbohydrate equivalent of one milligram of glucose. Time for another clinical pearl. A glucose bolus may result in heightened pancreatic insulin release, leading to rebound hypoglycemia. The blood glucose concentration should be checked approximately 30 minutes after the bolus and every one to two hours until euglycemia is achieved. If a subsequent value falls in the hypoglycemic range, the bolus should be repleted and the glucose infusion rate increased by two milligrams per kilogram per minute until euglycemia is achieved. Some infants who have transient or sustained hyperinsulinemia may require as much as 12 to 15 milligrams per kilogram per minute of IV glucose to maintain normal glycemia. All right, case point 32.3. She is given 20 milliliters of formula and transferred to the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU. Her blood glucose level 30 minutes after feeding is 11 milligrams per deciliter. In the NICU, she is given a 2 milliliter per kilogram bolus of D10 and started on continuous dextrose infusion. Repeat blood glucose level after the bolus was 44 milligrams per deciliter. The IV dextrose infusion is weaned slowly as the patient is drinking in a formula and breast milk to maintain appropriate blood glucose levels. Laboratory tests at 12 hours of life were remarkable for a blood glucose level of 
52 milligrams per deciliter, a calcium level of 8.2 milligrams per deciliter. Of note, normal calcium level is 8.8 .8 to 10 grams per deciliter, and magnesium level of 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, with a normal range of 1.7 to 2.2 milligrams per deciliter. So what are the metabolic complications noted in infants of diabetic mothers? The most common metabolic complications seen in IDMs are hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia, and hypomagnesemia. Time for another basic science and clinical pearl. In utero, the fetal parathyroid glands are relatively inactive because of the high transplacental flux of calcium. Abnormalities in calcium metabolism likely represent a delayed transition from fetal to neonatal parathyroid control. Maternal loss of magnesium due to diabetes may decrease available magnesium for placental transport to the fetus, resulting in blunted parathyroid hormone secretion and causing neonatal hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia. Hypocalcemia is usually asymptomatic in IDMs and resolves without treatment. Hypomagnesemia is also frequently transient and asymptomatic, thus it is usually not treated. Next clinical pearl. Serum calcium concentrations should be measured in infants with jitteriness, lethargy, apnea, tachypnea, or seizures, and in those with prematurity, asphyxia, respiratory distress, or suspected infection. Routine screening is not recommended. Time for a basic science and clinical pearl. Hypomagnesemia can reduce both parathyroid hormone or PTH secretion and responsiveness. Correction of low magnesium levels is critical to successfully treat hypocalcemia. Case point 32.4. On day three, she is noted to appear mildly jaundiced and her unconjugated bilirubin is 15 milligrams per deciliter. Of note, normal is less than 13 milligrams per deciliter in a premature baby on day of life three. She is diagnosed with hyperbilirubinemia and started on phototherapy. So what is the most likely cause of hyperbilirubinemia in this child beyond physiologic jaundice? Polycythemia. A central venous hematocrit of more than 65% is the most common hematologic complication in an IDM. This is thought to be due to fetal hypoxia resulting from hyperinsulinemia and fluctuations in fetal glucose concentrations that affect fetal oxygen availability. Chronic fetal hypoxia then triggers erythropoiesis to increase the oxygen carrying capacity in the fetus. Time for a basic science and clinical pearl. Infants with polycythemia present with a ruddy appearance, sluggish capillary refill, or respiratory distress. Hyperviscosity resulting from polycythemia may cause renal vein thrombosis, stroke, seizures, and necrotizing enterocolitis. To detect polycythemia, the hematocrit should be measured within 12 hours of birth. Hyperbilirubinemia, common seen, commonly seen in IDMs, is likely secondary to the breakdown of an increased number of circulating red blood cells, or RBCs, from polycythemia, along with relative immaturity of hepatic bilirubin conjugation and excretion. Case point 32.5. The infant's hyperbilirubinemia stabilizes and her discharge is prepared. During rounds, your attending asks you about congenital abnormalities associated with IDMs. What are some of the congenital abnormalities seen in infants of diabetic mothers? Multiple organ systems are susceptible to the teratogenic effects of diabetes. 
cardiac anomalies such as transposition of the great arteries, double outlet right ventricle, ventricular septal defect, truncus arteriosus, tricuspid atresia, and patent ductus arteriosus are more prevalent in IDMs. Spinal agenesis, caudal regression syndrome, a syndrome involving varying degrees of developmental failure in the lower lumbar, sacral, and coccygeal vertebrae, is strongly associated with IDMs. Structural abnormalities of the central nervous system in IDMs are related to the failure of neural tube closure and include meningomyelocele, encephalocele, and anencephaly. Renal anomalies such as renal agenesis, ureteral duplication, hydronephrosis, cystic kidneys, and renal vein thrombosis can also occur. Infants affected by renal vein thrombosis present with a flank mass due to renal enlargement. The most common intestinal anomalies include atresias of the duodenum and rectum. Neonatal small left colon syndrome, also known as neonatal microcolon or lazy colon syndrome, is a transient anomaly unique to IDMs. This condition presents as intestinal obstruction with affected infants ultimately developing normal function. So why are infants of diabetic mothers at risk for cardiomyopathy? Transient hypertrophic cardiomyopathy noted in 30% of IDMs is believed to be caused by fetal hyperinsulinemia. Fetal hyperinsulinemia increases the synthesis and deposition of fat and glycogen in myocardial cells. The most prominent change is asymmetric septal hypertrophy resulting in a reduction of ventricular chamber size and in left ventricular outflow obstruction. Time for another clinical pearl. Respiratory symptoms may the, be the first sign of cardiomyopathy if not already detected on prenatal ultrasound. This cardiomyopathy is transient and resolves as plasma insulin concentrations normalize. Symptomatic infants typically recover after two to three weeks of supportive care and echocardiographic findings resolve within six to 12 months. Supportive care for symptomatic infants includes increased IV fluid administration and beta blockers such as propanolol. Inotropic agents are contraindicated because they may decrease ventricular size and further obstruct cardiac outflow. So are infants of diabetic mothers predisposed to congenital malformations? IDMs have three times the incidence of congenital anomalies than infants of mothers without diabetes. This risk can be reduced by strict glycemic control during the pre- and periconceptual periods, aka the first eight weeks of pregnancy. The risk of isolated and multiple congenital anomalies is highest in infants of mothers with uncontrolled pregestational diabetes, as noted by an elevated hemoglobin A1C level. Time for a clinical pearl. Preconceptual euglycemia is critical to reduce perinatal complications such as macrosomia and congenital anomalies. All right, beyond the pearls. Although the fetus has the potential for gluconeogenesis, the actual formation of glucose from pyruvate is not apparent until after birth because the right limiting enzyme, phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase appears only after birth in the immediate newborn period. A small group of IDMs, usually delivered to mothers who have advanced diabetes with significant vascular disease, may be affected by growth restriction because of compromised nutrient and oxygen delivery to the fetus. IDMs with significant macrosomia should be considered for delivery by cesarean section, 
as they are at increased risk for shoulder dystocia with vaginal delivery. This can lead to brachial plexus injury. It is important to examine the IDM's lower back for lumbar, sacral, and coccygeal vertebral anomalies associated with caudal regression syndrome. These can often be associated with lower limb congenital malformations such as club foot, hypoplastic femur, defects of the tibia and fibula, and knee and hip contractures. Abnormal, abnormalities of the lower extremities require a thorough neurologic examination and radiographic evaluation. Intrauterine exposure to hyperglycemia may result in an increased risk for obesity later in life. Fetal hyperinsulinemia may affect the development of adipose tissue and pancreatic beta cells, leading to an increased body mass index and impaired glucose metabolism. This effect is seen in IDMs as both pre-gestational and gestational diabetes in adulthood. Time for the case summary. So for the complaint in history, a preterm infant is delivered to a mother with type 2 diabetes mellitus. The findings? On physical examination, the infant is found to be macrosomic with mild respiratory distress. She does not have any other dysmorphic features associated with her mother's condition. For labs and tests, she is noted to have a serum glucose level of 10 mg per deciliter at one hour of life. Labs also show hypocalcemia, hypomagnesemia, and an unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. For the diagnosis, hypoglycemia, secondary to hyperinsulinemia, as seen in infants of diabetic mothers. Now for the treatment. The infant is given oral formula and an IV dextrose bolus. She is transferred to the NICU where her serum glucose level is closely monitored. She is gradually weaned off of her IV dextrose drip as she is able to achieve euglycemia on oral feeds alone. Her hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia resolve without interventions. She is placed under phototherapy until her unconjugated bilirubin reaches an acceptable level for discharge. That concludes our case for today. Again, my name is Jasmine Masumi, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.